Okay. <clears throat> Welcome to the Environmental Justice Report with me, your host and producer, Janine Moloff. Well, this week we have a very interesting case we're going to talk about. And even though this show focuses on issues of environmental justice, you can't have environmental justice unless you have true justice overall, which we presently do not have in the United States. In fact, the the term justice in this nation has proven to be a farcical and extremely cruel joke, nothing else. So if you saw the advert, you saw basically the heading Supreme Court case which could destroy the EPA. And then underneath it said West Virginia versus EPA is the case that could, and get this, dismantle all regulations, especially environmental regulations, by using what's called the non-delegation doctrine. And this case has enormous implications for our nation as we know it. If corporate polluters win this one, theoretically speaking, any new regulations for the EPA or other government agencies, whether it's um, the Food and Drug Administration, whether it's educational regulations that might, that might protect, for instance, your special needs child, whether it is workers' rights through the Department of Labor, all of those could go by the wayside, and if the non-delegation doctrine succeeds to its ext- most extreme form, any time one of these agencies would want to either amend a regulation or put in a new one, they would have to gain legislative approval from Congress each and every time. Now, we know Congress has gridlock like basically, you know, Trump has an ugly comb over. I mean, let's get a little real here. And the gridlock is also in large part due to the what I call the silent filibuster. Now, there's a difference. Again, I'm going to review this a little bit. Remember, if you ever saw the old movie, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, you saw Jimmy Stewart's character doing a filibuster, talking until he drops in his tracks. That's not what we're talking about. The silent filibuster, which basically is Mitch McConnell's favorite thing in the whole wide world, basically allows a legislator, member of Congress, to just write basically on a piece of paper they intend to filibuster. And everything comes to a grinding halt unless they have 60 votes to override that. That's what we're talking about. So if you have to gain legislative approval every time you want to amend some minor regulation, you know what's going to happen. These agencies, their regulations will basically cease to exist because you know Congress is in no shape to process regulations in an efficient manner. Furthermore, members of Congress, majority of them, are either businessmen or attorneys. So when it comes to scientific issues, they don't know what they're looking at. <clears throat> Excuse me, folks. <clears throat> so I, try, I will try not to cough too much. Don't you just love winter? All right, so let's talk about this case, West Virginia versus EPA. So this is a case that on the surface, looks benign, but then a lot of really important Supreme Court cases do look benign or or basically harmless on the surface. 
they often look like this is just some little technical detail, nothing important. But you have to remember how attorneys practice law. It isn't just about precedent, which is what happened before, it was decided before, as they constantly proclaim. The practice of law has been reduced to basically, especially corporate attorneys, in my opinion, becoming uh, basically controllers of the, the technical legal jargon, and they just use a lot of jargon, and they don't really argue that much in terms of actual issues of justice. My opinion, I'm entitled to it. So this case, West Virginia versus EPA, what you need to remember about Supreme Court cases is the import of these cases is they affect precedent. In other words, rulings that came before. In this case, West Virginia versus EPA is a whopper because it has the potential to dismantle every regulatory agency, or rather every regulation in a regulatory agency. Let me amend that. This case has the potential to dismantle every regulation for all regulatory agencies. It just depends on how far the court goes. But even if they give, even if the court decides in favor of West Virginia, let's say, against EPA, and let's say it's a limited decision, they can still go back and just chip away at it. So whether or not it is the Paul Bunyan approach where you just chop down the tree all at once, or the termite approach where it's death by a million little cuts, it's still designed to subvert these laws that were fought hard for, okay? We're talking laws not only in terms of environmental issues, this could even extend to civil rights and DOJ. This is really a sneak attack, (coughs) nothing more. And the people that are at, at the bottom of this, besides the Federalist Society, are Trump appointees to the Supreme Court. That means Neil Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett. It also means Clarence Thomas as well, because he is one of the most extreme conservatives on the court, as well as Samuel Alito, who claims that, you know, Alito bristles every time somebody suggests that racism still exists in this country. And then you have the Chief Justice, John Roberts, who pretends to be a moderate, but he made his entire career on the prem, basically his goal for his entire career was to destroy the Civil Rights Act of 1964, and he did with the Shelby decision in 2013. So this is a Supreme Court of extreme anti-democracy oligarchs. Seriously. That, that's just all there is to it. And the only thing that is a little shining light would be yeah, Justice Stevens is still around, Justices Kagan and Sonia Sotomayor, especially Sotomayor. God bless her. Well, let's get into the story. I get a little wound up about this because, again, I hate cowards and sneak thieves, and that's what this case is all about. So the first story. And then after the story, we're going to have, of course, our feature store, our new feature, the Jackass of the Week. And this week is pretty entertaining, too. So, West Virginia versus EPA. 
I found this story in Vox, and it was written by Ian Milheiser. If you ever get a chance to read any of his journalism, please do. He is just a wonderful journalist, okay? So this, was, this came out on November 3rd, and the headline was, A New Supreme Court Case Could Gut the Government's Power to Fight Climate Change. And then the subtitle is, Neil, Gorsuch, Neil Gorsuch's Dream Case Could Be the Earth's Nightmare. So this case is specifically about environmental regulations, but again, depending on how far the court goes with this, it could apply to all regulatory agencies. You know, it could as a potential to reverse things back to, you know, the days of child labor and workers being put in jeopardy every day to go to work. So let's go with this. So uh, the Supreme Court announced Basically, I think it was around Halloween, ironically, that they will hear four, not just one, but four very similar cases. And so let me amend what I said earlier. But these four cases are most likely going to be consolidated. In other words, heard together under this one name, which is West Virginia versus the Environmental Protection Agency, or EPA. And this could prove to be some of the most consequential court decisions in recent court history. I would go back to say in our entire court history. So these cases that are going to be under the rubric of West Virginia versus EPA are the latest incursion on this litigation that goes nonstop over President Obama's Clean Power Plan. Now, let me let me make a provision here. The Clean Power Plan <clears throat> was not the end-all be-all, okay? Barack Obama wasn't exactly a, a, a friend to environmental causes, but he did the minimum, let's put it that way, the bare minimum, if that. But when Obama and Democrats wrote the Clean Power Plan, they wrote it with such vague terminology that it was set up to be torn apart. And this is a bigger issue we'll get to a little later in the show. They're attacking the Clean Power Plan. Now, Understands, according to Milheiser, the Clean Power Plan has actually never been implemented. It's still kind of a zombie-type uh, legislative state. And let me explain further. According to Milheiser, a federal appeals court decision, quote, revised the plan last January. And that's according to casetext.com. But the Biden administration, according to Vox, said in February that it would not reinstate Obama's policy, and that's according to EPA.gov. So if President Biden's administration isn't going to reinstitute Obama's clean power plan, what's the problem? Well, the problem is that the GOP wants to kill all regulation. In fact, I would say, in my opinion, it's safe to say that the only law that the GOP likes are basically the laws that grant the rich and white Christian males the power to do whatever they damn well please with little to no impunity. I mean, I'm sorry, with impunity. Let me, so the only, let me revise that, okay? <laughs> I would say that the only law that the GOP and extreme conservatives really favor are laws that allow white Christian males, and especially the wealthy, to do whatever they damn well please to anyone else with impunity and no consequences to the rich 
or white Christian male. Folks, that's not rule of law. That's monarchy with a titled aristocratic class. Let's cut the crap and say what it is. Because that's, and it's not justice at all. So let's go back to this. So Biden's not going to implement the Clean Power Act, but guess what? The Federalist Society has been chomping at the bit because they want new limits on the Clean Air Act. Again, the Clean Air Act that's never been implemented. And they want these limits that would, severe, quote, severely restrict the Environmental Protection Agency's ability to reduce greenhouse, greenhouse emissions in the future. Okay? So, again, Federalists, you know, these are the same people that don't believe that climate devastation is happening. They think it's a hoax. They're climate change denialists. It goes further than that. Okay? Because behind this one instance of attacking the clean power plant, plan, which again has never been implemented, there is a bigger danger. And this is the Federalist Society's litigious wet dream of all time. And that is what's called the non-delegation doctrine. Now the non-delegation doctrine has remained dormant. It has not been used, for truth be told, since the time of FDR. It was used to basically curtail some of FDR's powers to prevent other aspects of the New Deal from coming into reality. All right, you know, because God forbid that the GOP should ever want to improve the the lot of the non-rich. That won't happen. So the real danger is this non-delegation doctrine. And non-delegation doctrine, you could argue that it is an attack on rule of law itself. Okay, so some of the parties in the West Virginia litigation, quote, claim that it is unconstitutional for the EPA to take the sort of aggressive strides against climate change that the Obama administration took in its clean power plan, end quote. Now, I don't agree that the clean power plan was so aggressive, but that's what they're saying. They're claiming that it's unconstitutional for the EPA to basically do its job, all right? This theory, this non-delegation doctrine, wouldn't just strip the EPA of most, if not all, of its power, especially to try and fight climate change, but, quote, it could potentially disable Congress's ability to effectively protect the environment, okay? Now, I'm going to add, there's more relevance of a dangerous nature here, okay? The stakes are much higher. The implications for rule of law are more dire. So in the West Virginia litigation doesn't really fully capture those stakes. Here's why. Quote, the most aggressive arguments against the clean power plan wouldn't just apply to environmental regulations. They could also fundamentally alter the structure of the U.S. government, stripping away the government's power on issues as diverse as workplace safety, environmental protection, access to birth control, overtime pay, and vaccination, end quote. And this is the true danger here, okay? And the charge that it would fundamentally alter the structure of the U.S. government is documented in Vox.com in a piece entitled Supreme Court War, Joe Biden Agency Regulations, Administrative, Neil Gert, well, never mind, it's when you look at the URL, it's hard to kind of to read the, 
the actual title. Um, in this scenario, with the non-delegation doctrine being revived, it's, it's always existed. It's existed since the time of FDR, and it was used once. And then after that, uh, subsequent Supreme Courts just kind of ignored it. But it's been brought roaring back, and especially roaring back by one, these Trump appointees, especially Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh, as well as an older member of the court named Clarence Thomas. In this scenario, this is a direct quote, quote, in the scenario, hundreds of laws could be weakened or even deactivated. Many of them would be gone for good, end quote. There's more. Under this non-delegation doctrine, if it were enacted through this case, quote, reenacting any of these laws would require passing legislation through a bitterly divided Congress, end quote. Okay? And that's where the filibuster comes in. You know, we know the filibuster allows one person to stop everything. The filibuster itself is unconstitutional because it denies equal representation, but this is what we're dealing with. So I'm going to read this again because I want you to really fully comprehend how dangerous this policy is. The non-delegation doctrine, which the West Virginia versus EPA collection of cases is really is serving as the illustration for the non that let me go back again. This West Virginia versus EPA case, which is a collection of cases under that rubric, is using and, and bringing roaring back the non-delegation doctrine. And under the non-delegation doctrine, in theory, quote, hundreds of laws could be weakened or even deactivated. Many of them would be gone for good. And reenacting any of these laws would require passing legislation through a bitterly divided Congress, end quote. Let that sink in for a minute. Okay? We have a Supreme Court of nine justices. And, what, and you have to remember, there's been an argument that, well, the court, is, the court isn't political. Of course the court's political. All right? The fact is, these judges are unelected. Once they are admitted to the, the bench of the Supreme Court, it's a lifetime appointment. They have total power, in essence. And I don't think that should continue. But again, my opinion. So then who's behind bringing back this non-delegation doctrine, okay, that would basically dismantle these regulations, not just for EPA, but for a lot of other agencies, that big money, big banks, and corporations despise? Well, guess who? The Federalist Society, and again, the Federalist Society, they are unelected, they are um, they're anti-democracy, and they're the ones that cursed us with the present Supreme Court justices sent by Trump and by uh, George W. before that. Make no mistake about it. And the Federalist Society, we will talk about that on another show. They were a bunch of law students, and it grew and grew and grew. And 
you know, they get money from certain billionaires to basically push this nonsense. Because make no mistake about it, there are forces in this country that despise democratic rule. You know, if they could bring back slavery, they would. Make no mistake about it. So West Virginia, the case, the West Virginia case is a monster. And but according to this article, it's also quote the culmination of a conservative vision incubated at the Federalist Society for years and long championed by conservative activists such as Justices Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh. Okay, and this is according to ThinkProgress.org in an uh, article titled, The Little Notice Conservative Plan to Permanently Lock Democrats Out of Policymaking. I would go further and say, this isn't just limited to Democrats versus Republicans. Okay, let's call this out because this is locking all of us out of Democratic rule. Period. Because I would, I would argue that most people here in the United States, if there were multiple parties, the two Major, the two parties would be pretty much out of business. I mean, it just is what it is. But let's make no mistake about it. In my opinion, the GOP is the party that despises democratic rule. The GOP is the party that the party that endorses systemic racism, the party that endorses neo-Nazism, and the party that endorses uh, your boss's ability to abuse you and never face any sort of consequences. That's what I think of the GOP. Okay? And I won't shrink from it. So this article goes on to say, yes, the majority of the Supreme Court has already shown that they are sympathetic to Gorsuch's plan in particular to, quote, shrink the power of federal agencies. And that's a big part of this. How do you shrink the the power of, of, of federal agencies? You strip them of their right to basically create regulations as they interpret the law. Now, think about this for a minute. Even if you are an originalist, do you really want a bunch of attorneys making policy decisions and regulations on the governance of, say, medicine, science, your child's education, do you really want a bunch of attorneys, and most of which are corporate attorneys, deciding what, what the law is going to look like without actual allegedly neutral attorneys in DOJ deciding what, um, what your work future is going to look like, deciding whether or not your boss can demand that you never get a day off, deciding whether or not your boss can basically, let's say you're working in mining, they can decide, you know what, you don't need that breathing apparatus. You don't need any of these safety concerns. If you die in the mines, oh well. well. That's the way it was in the early 20th century. And this is their political wet dream for all of us, to reduce us to wage slaves, even worse than we already are, to reduce us to basically the sweatshops that my grandfather used to work in where they locked people in and beat you if you didn't meet quota. This is what they want for us. Make no mistake about it. And this is one of the first steps, this non-delegation doctrine. 
Now, the West Virginia litigation, quote, seeks to permanently entrench Trumpian environmental policy. And we know Donald Trump, his environmental policy was let the polluters dirty do whatever they want as long as he gets some of the money. Okay, there was nothing legitimate about Donald Trump or his policies. We know this. He's a grifter. There is too much evidence to prove that Donald Trump and really the Trump family are just a bunch of grifters. So for the court to pretend that there's some legitimacy behind this is ridiculous. But again, at the core of this West Virginia case is this conflict between Obama's environmental policy and Donald Trump's constant jealousy and irritation at directed at Barack Obama. Okay. But there's more. If this West Virginia case succeeds and the non-delegation doctrine in some form is reincorporated, quote, the red state, power companies, and mining interests behind this lawsuit, they all hope to entrench Trump's policies potentially forever. That's what it's about. this whole thing is about. Now, let's look at the Clean Air Act that, real, that Obama, you know, pushed through and, again, has never been implemented. The Clean Air Act, at a basic requirement, uh, demands that power plants use, quote, the best system of emission reduction that can be achieved using existing technology while also taking into account factors such as cost, end quote. This is very vague language. This is a problem with a lot of our laws, actually. How do you determine what is the best system of emission reduction? Well, hopefully you get the best scientist to help uh, um, determine that in a neutral way based on evidence. But, you know, here's the thing. Who, who would determine that? Would it be scientists in that specific industry? Or would it be corporate attorneys? Or would it be scientists that work for mining interests, for instance, that aren't that will that will not tell us the truth because again, they they value their jobs more than their integrity. Which is it? You know, whistleblower protection in this nation is a joke, let's be honest. But I added something to this, and my question is this, why did the Obama team write such a poorly worded law. The phrase that I read to you, the best system of emission reduction that can be achieved using existing technology while taking into account factors such that phrase is so vague. I could drive a freaking 18-wheeler through a solitary loophole. And this really, this issue of vague and poorly worded, worded legislation really addresses the fact that both the Democrats and the Republicans continually write laws that are filled, again, with vague, poorly defined criterion, if they cited any criterion at all, that is, in order to, guess what, protect corporate interests. Because both politicians from both parties get political donations, a.k.a. bribes, from the same corporation. The Republicans get more, but, you know, they're just playing good cop versus bad cop against all the rest of us. If they had written the law to include some specific goals, okay, with specific criterion that was measurable, this wouldn't be happening. Just wouldn't. 
for example, the Obama team could have written criterion and goals which follow, say, the international UN agreements on reducing climate change and climate devastation. Instead, they wrote an indefensible law knowing it would be dismantled, all the while corporate Dems could pretend to be the good cop to the GOP's bad cop. That's it. Unfortunately, this set us up for the dismantling of practically all regulations that protect most of us um, under the Non-Delegation Act, and under the Non-Delegation Doctrine. Well, let's go back to the Clean Air Act that, this is, that the West Virginia case is attacking. Under the Clean Air Act, the answer to who would decide what is exactly the best system of emission reduction at any given moment would be the EPA. And according to Milheiser, the, the author of this, of this uh, piece, quote, it is the EPA's job to, one, study changing technologies, two, determine when a new breakthrough should be adopted by power plants, and three, to order those plants to use that technology by issuing binding regulations, end quote. Okay. Now, there are some circumstances, according to this writer, that a power plant doesn't have to use the exact same technology preferred by EPA, but it has to be under that rubric. Okay. And furthermore, power plants that use alternative methods would only be allowed to do so normally if those alternative methods could achieve the same levels of emission reduction that would be, used, that would, that would be achieved using the EPA's preferred methods. And the Clean Power Plan, it did a few good things. It didn't just call upon coal-firing plants to uh, install devices that would make them burn more efficiently. It also called, quote, for power plants to shift away from coal and toward cleaner methods of generating energy, including both natural gas and methods that produce no emissions at all, such as solar, end quote. So I take back a few of the criticisms. I can admit when I'm wrong. Um, the Clean Power Plan did do some good. The fact that this core challenge is coming from West Virginia, from Joe Manchin's state, and Joe Manchin owns coal plants. Again, the corruption is getting so deep, I don't even know if hip waders would do much good. The stench that slides off of Joe Manchin it is, is vile, okay? So the West Virginia petitioners basically made the claim that the EPA cannot require all those changes. And let's face it, that's going to bode well under a Republican administration and Republican-dominated courts such as the Supreme Court. And there's, you know, there was a little more. In 2016, the Supreme Court uh, denied, um, the Supreme Court justices voted five to four to halt the Clean Power Plan. Okay? This, this was in 2016, just days before Scalia died. These people will, go, will stop at nothing. And in 2019, Trump's EPA, they uh, basically made a formal announcement of a new policy, quote, euphemistically known as the Affordable Clean Energy Rule, or ACE, 
which replaced the clean power plan with much weaker rule. No, end quote. No shock there. Okay. It was basically a permission slip to get away with anything. Now, the Trump-era ACE rules uh, urged. They didn't demand. They didn't mandate. They just said they asked coal plants to install these technologies, like upgraded suit blowers and what are called boiler feed pumps. Now, those technologies could marginally reduce emissions, but that's it. In fact, um, Trump's EPA did acknowledge that the recommended technologies that they liked, such as, again, the suit blowers and the boiler feed pumps, could actually increase emissions because they would reduce the cost of producing energy with coal. Now, I see we have a caller from the 917 um, area code. Specifically, the number is 917-373-1327. Um, again, when I accept calls, I announced at the beginning of the show that I will, and then that call will be at the last 10 minutes. I did not make such an announcement, and that person finally left. I guess they didn't like their phone number being outed or doxed. Is that the word doxed? I think it is. Um, this isn't that kind of broadcast. This isn't Fox. It doesn't have Fox's budget. And when conservatives especially complain, like we had a caller a couple weeks ago saying, oh, so you don't believe in free speech. No, I do. I believe in free speech. But that doesn't mean I have to allow a caller to come on and push Trumpian points and then monopolize the time that both I and my associates pay for. So, no, I'm not going to allow any conservative Trumpian freeloaders on my show. That's simple. These people have a hell of a lot of nerve. So if they want to call me out and say I'm horrible, please do. You'll up my profile. I really don't care. Let's move on. So... The actual preferred technology by the Trump EPA could actually increase emissions, and that's because they would reduce the cost, the cost of producing energy with coal, okay? Um, now, the appeals court opinion, let me go back here a minute. All right, so um, let me back up here a little bit here, because I can admit, let's see. So a federal appeals court explained in an opinion striking down the rules for the Clean Power Plan that, um, quote, the EPA predicted that its ACE rule, in other words, favored by Trump, would reduce carbon dioxide emissions by less than 1% from baseline emission projections by 2035. And that's according to casetext.com and that's the American Lung Association versus the Environmental Protection Agency. Now, think about that statement. An appeals court basically said that Trump's own EPA predicted that Trump's ACE rule would not be effective, would reduce carbon dioxide emissions by less than 1%, which is pretty much useless. And they also said that the court said that prediction was optimistic. And the appeals court opinion 
is now being reviewed by the Supreme Court in the West Virginia case. That's one of them, one of the little subcases. And the parties that brought this case urged the court to state definitively that the Clean Power Plan is not allowed. I think that's basically pretty clear. All right. One thing you can say about ultra-extreme Republicans is when they say, we're going to destroy you, yeah, they pretty much mean it. Okay. So a decision that, you know, should the West Virginia litigant side win could alter in major ways the EPA's powers that would make it really difficult to not only uh, set aside Trump's policies, but it would make it impossible for these agencies to function. They'd have to get a permission slip from Congress every time they wanted to change the slightest little thing. And we both know that's an exercise in futility. So let's talk about how federal agencies shape policy so we can better understand. So the Clean Air Act relied on, I'm just reading straight from this quote, the Clean Air Act relies on a type of governance that is ubiquitous in federal law. Congress lays out a broad policy, in this case that power plants must use the best system of emission reduction. And then delegates to the EPA, I'm not sorry, and then they delegate to the EPA the task of implementing policy through a series of binding regulations. Okay, countless federal statutes rely on a similar structure. Okay, so if you strip, if you if the Supreme Court de, uh, declares that that structure, that that right of agencies to interpret the law, and then through their experts in various fields is, issue binding um, regulations. If you do that for one agency, they're all basically destroyed. And, and again, we have experts, for instance, in the EPA that are scientists and engineers that look at these regulations. Now, a lot of times the lawyers override them, but they're the ones making the recommendations for the binding regulations usually. We have experts that should be in education making those decisions, experts in medicine making decisions in that venue. Otherwise, you would have the lawyers in Congress deciding they know more about the environment than scientists. Lawyers in Congress would decide that they know more about medicine than actual physicians. Lawyers in Congress that would decide that they know more about defense than actual soldiers who served, you get the drift, okay? Um, so that's really what's going on here. This case is potentially very dangerous, very, very dangerous. So some people would say, well, what's wrong with Congress making all those decisions? Well, if Congress is, to quote this author, a dysfunctional mess, because it is. We've seen it. They can't even pass an infrastructure bill without constant infighting, without the Republicans tearing things out, without uh, corporate Democrats, like Mansion and Cinema, tearing things out. They can't even decide if they're going to fund the government. You can't, if there is, say, let's, let's use uh, an example that conservatives love, the military. Let's say there's a military emergency, emergency 
on the on the horizon. Okay, let's just say it. Let's just say, and I don't know anything about it that you know China or Russia develops anti-missile technology, and they were giving us an ultimatum. Okay, in order to assess whether or not that technology is that functional. You need scientists and engineers to assess it, not lawyers overstepping the bounds of their professional expertise. Okay? And this is the same argument that Milheiser makes, that delegating power to agencies, quote, also ensures that decisions are made by people who know what they are doing. And it goes, Milheiser goes on to say, quote, imagine, for example, if Congress had to pass a law every time the Food and Drug Administration wanted to make a new drug available to the public. Even if Congress had time to vote on such a decision, most members of Congress know little about biology, chemistry, or medicine. Now we have a new caller. It's one 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 one. Every time they call, I'm going to dox them. I'm not playing this game. That's it. Obviously using a burner phone. Notice how these people hide behind fake names. My real name is on this show. So up there's, I know that's not polite, but believe me, I wanted to say something a lot more graphic, but I will restrain myself. Okay, getting back to the show here. To go on with what Milheiser said about this, quote, the decision, all right, so basically let's go back here. Quote, even if Congress had time to vote on such a decision, most members of Congress know very little about biology, chemistry, or medicine. Delegation also insulates important decisions from political horse trading. End quote. Another quote. Quote, the decision about whether to approve a new drug should be made by scientists in the FDA, not by lawmakers who might be concerned with the drug's manufacturer in Arizona. And they that they need to butter up Senator, Senator Kirsten Sinema to secure her vote for the Build Back Better Act. Direct quote. But a majority of conservatives on the Supreme Court, they're hostile to the idea that experts in federal agencies should be allowed to set policy. Okay? And some five of the nine justices all conservatives, quote, have signaled that they want to revive a largely defunct constitutional doctrine known as non-delegation. End quote. Comes straight back to that, doesn't it? So non-delegation explained. Let's go into it in a little more depth. Again, I'm just going to read straight through because I'm not an attorney. Quote, non-delegation is the idea that the Constitution places strict limits on Congress's ability to delegate power to federal agencies. Although the Supreme Court briefly wielded the non-delegation doctrine to strike down New Deal policies, that gave a simply extraordinary amount of regulatory power to President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. This doctrine largely lay dormant for generations. Okay? End quote. Another quote, quote, indeed, for many years, the court's decisions typically emphasize how reluctant judges should be to second-guess agency regulations, end quote. And that's from uh, Cornell Law School, an article on the Supreme Court. 
Um, but during the Obama administration, conservatives on the court started pushing for non-delegation. You know, part of it is hostility to any sort of protective regulation that protects the public. And part of it may very well have been racism. It's going to call it for what it is. I may not have agreed with President Obama on some of his fiscal policies because, again, I don't care for a neoliberal fiscal policy. I am a progressive in the model of Bernie Sanders and FDR. That being said, however, President Obama and his family and any other members of Congress or the government that are people of color should never have had to endure the amount of virulent racism that they did. That is our national disgrace. Okay, so back to this. So during the Obama administration, it was Justice Clarence Thomas uh, in, who issued a 2015 opinion who advocated for the strongest form of the non-delegation doctrine. Now, Clarence Thomas, as um, documented by SupremeJustia.com, basically wanted to say that agencies are just forbidden from issuing any sort of binding regulations of any type. He is the most extreme on the court. Clarence Thomas also believes that any governmental decision that, quote, involves an exercise of policy discretion also requires an exercise of legislative power, end quote. Translation, Clarence Thomas, yes, he believes that any time a federal agency wants to issue even the slightest change to any sort of regulation, no matter how small, that they have to go get a goddamn permission slip from Congress. That's what it means. So that would essentially render laws like the Clean Air Act totally forbidden because they couldn't issue any sort of regulations. That's one way of nullifying any laws that are passed that the conservatives don't like especially when they don't have the votes to get rid of it. You just nullify the agency's ability to have their experts in their respective fields make reasonable regulation. That's what all this, I'm going to say a bad word, that's what all this bullshit amounts to. Period. It is bullshit couched in legal jargon. You know, and this is outrageous. And it doesn't matter how small the regulation would be. Neil Heiser on this, the author of this article, says that most of the justices wouldn't, probably wouldn't go right now as far as what Thomas wants. But he also mentions that a majority of the court has, quote, rallied around the approach Neil Gorsuch laid out in a dissenting opinion that Gorsuch wrote in Gundy v. United States in 2019. Okay? And this Basically, Neil Gorsuch is another very dangerous justice. He's dangerous because he's a brilliant technocrat. Make no mistake about it. He dismantled laws, or he would, let's say that. I won't say he did. Gorsuch would prefer to dismantle laws that reflect democratic rule, but that the 1% in corporate don't want, by just finding technical little details that would unravel the whole thing. Now, this is really a difference in the letter of the law versus the spirit of the law. Make no mistake about it. Give you a perfect example. When I was a little child, 
My mother taught me that you don't take things that don't belong to you. And we were in a dime store, Woolworths. Some of you might remember that. And I was told children that age are very concrete, don't take anything off the shelf. I found this little parasol, little toy parasol, and it had fallen on the floor. Well, it wasn't on the shelf, and I was only three years old at the time. And I was playing with it, and my mother asked me, where did you get that? And I said, I didn't take it from the shelf. It was on the floor. And she said, Nini, because that was my nickname, that still doesn't belong to you. It doesn't matter. That was a technicality, but it doesn't belong to you. You need to give it back. And she marched me very calmly up to the manager of the store, made me apologize, and give it back. That lesson is ingrained in my brain. Because to give you the most concrete example of the letter of the law, how absolutely immature it can be. It is a three-year-old's mentality. Technically, it didn't fit the, the definition of taking something because it was assumed discarded because it wasn't on the shelf. It wasn't on the shelf that was defined as belonging to someone else. It was on the floor. This is what Gorsuch does, in essence. He finds technicalities that basically nullify and render rule of law impotent except on the things that the very rich want. That's it. So going back to Gorsuch, in the Gundy opinion, uh, Gundy versus the United States, Gorsuch wrote the dissenting opinion. He didn't agree with it. Uh, there was a federal law that authorized an agency to regulate. Uh, here, let me go back here. So Gorsuch wrote, among other things, okay, Quote, a federal law authorizing an agency to regulate, Gorsuch wrote in Gundy, must be, quote, sufficiently definite and precise to enable Congress, the courts, and the public to ascertain whether Congress's guidance has been followed, end quote. And this is a vague standard. Okay? Could Justice Gorsuch get any more vague? What constitutes sufficiently definite and precise? Seriously, you're going to use that phrase, and you need to have some sort of criterion. A standard that's that vague, Milheiser argues, is really inconsistent with the framers' understanding of the Constitution. So Milheiser is apparently calling out the conservatives as hypocrites. They claim that they're originalists, but only when it benefits them. Uh, so. Going back, Gorsuch's approach, according to Milheiser, Judge Gorsuch, it would basically, quote, consolidate an enormous amount of power within the judiciary. And it would, because who would decide what constitutes whether or not uh, a federal law is, quote, sufficiently definite and precise to enable Congress, the courts, and the public to ascertain whether Congress's guidance has been followed? the court. This Gorsuch's approach, though it's not the sledgehammer that Clarence Thomas would use, litigiously speaking, Gorsuch's approach would create a judicial dictatorship, a judicial tyranny of the Supreme Court. Because again, keep in mind, the Supreme Court justices are accountable to no one, and they have lifetime appointments. Who holds the Supreme Court accountable? No one. 
And in the history of the court, while there have been some decisions, actually increased liberties, like the Gideon v. Wainwright case, Brown versus the Board of Education, Roe v. Wade. The majority of the court's history has been used to actually take rights away, period. You don't have to look any further than Judge Taney and the Dred Scott decision. The Supreme Court historically has been used to deprive us of rights. And there's, there's been very few bright spots. Perhaps Supreme Court justices should not serve a lifetime appointment. Maybe 20 years is enough. I don't know. But that's what Gorsuch's approach would be. Because the Supreme Court would be ultimately the final decision as to what constitutes, you know, sufficiently definite and precise. Okay? The court, the conservatives in the court are shifting power to themselves. Now, I'm aware of the fact that there are conservatives who made the same accusation against liberals on the court. I'm aware of that, and I'll grant you that. But I would also say that perhaps this is a signal that if this is the highest court in the land, perhaps justices should not serve for a lifetime. I wouldn't want them to change every five or ten years because that would be too confusing. Laws don't usually change that radically, but I think 20 years and out is plenty. I really do. Just a suggestion. Um, but under Gorsuch, the courts would gain a new power to strike down federal regulations by just claiming it exceeds Congress's power to delegate authority. And keep in mind, the non-delegation doctrine, you know, it was based on vague constitutional language. Let's be honest about this whole thing. Our Constitution is written in vague terms. You know, when I was a child, I was taught that this document that we call our Constitution is this mathematically beautiful document that was just precise enough and yet general enough that it could grow. Yeah, maybe. Or maybe it was just written by imperfect people who wanted to maintain power for their own subset, which is white Christian males who own property, and a few of them that wanted to increase rights to other people. But because it was written by imperfect people, this document should not be idolized. It shouldn't be dogmatic. And if there's errors made, the errors should be on the side of increasing equality before the law, equal rights before the law, not minimizing them as the conservatives in the court would do. Okay, let's move on. So the Gorsuch approach to non-delegation basically would through technical steps, grant dictatorial power to the Supreme Court. Okay? Courses of approach to non-delegation, according to Ian Milheiser, the author of this piece, quote, wouldn't simply strip Congress of much of its power to delegate authority to agencies. It would allow the most conservative panel of justices to sit on the Supreme Court since the early days of the Franklin Roosevelt administration. It would allow them to run roughshod through decades of federal... Let me go back here. According to Ian Milheiser, I'm sorry about that, folks. According to Ian Milheiser, 
the author of this piece, which is really very well written. Judge Gorsuch's approach to non-delegation, quote, wouldn't simply strip Congress of much of its power to delegate authority to agencies. It would allow the most conservative panel of justices to sit on the Supreme Court since the early days of the Franklin Roosevelt administration to run roughshod through decades of federal statutes invalidating or severely weakening hundreds of provisions at its, drafted at a time when the non-delegation doctrine was widely viewed as a crankish notion that was correctly abandoned in the 1930s. Okay, think about that for a minute. And if it sounds like I'm dogging conservatives, I am. Because conservatives, they use the excuse, in my opinion, they use the excuse of original intent to make sure that only people they like are granted rights and to deny rights to everyone else. Essentially, conservatives aren't conserving anything. Conservatives are, in my opinion, monarchists who want to be part of this established aristocracy that are allowed to dump on the rest of us mutts. Calling it out. Okay. Um, this case could begin the dismantling of really weak democracy in and of itself. West Virginia case contains, quote, the seeds of a constitutional revolution. It could, as Roosevelt warned, in 1937, enable the Supreme Court to make our democracy impotent. <coughs> and that's from historymatters.gmu.edu. That's the whole thing. Okay. Now there's more to this. In 2016, during the Obama administration, Kavanaugh, who's now in the Supreme Court, was a lower court judge. And the D.C. court heard another case involving the Clean Power Plant, which was also known as West Virginia versus EPA. Now, Gorsuch was still a lower court judge as well, and the non-delegation doctrine was just remained a what's called, quote, reactionary idea touted at Federalist Society conferences as documented by thinkprogress.org. Then Judge Kavanaugh suggested during oral arguments that the clean power plan has to basically just fall, go away. Kavanaugh basically based his arguments on something known as the major questions doctrine. Now, the major questions doctrine isn't quite as dangerous as the non-delegation doctrine, but it derives from the Supreme Court's, it derives its alleged power from the Supreme Court decision in FDA versus Brown and Williamson Tobacco in 2000. Now, federal law gives the FDA some pretty broad authority to regulate drugs and devices, and devices used to deliver drugs. <coughs> and, that, and that was concluded in a five to four um, decision in Brown and Williamson. But that decision also determined that the power of the FDA does not extend to tobacco. So, Courts usually defer to an agency's regulatory decisions, but not in the Brown versus Williamson case. The Brown case concluded that, quote, in extraordinary cases, there may be reason to hesitate before concluding that Congress has intended to delegate authority to a federal agency in asserting the power to regulate tobacco. It goes on to say, quote, 
the FDA has now asserted jurisdiction to regulate an industry constituting a significant portion of the American economy, end quote, and also says that Congress had previously, quote, rejected proposals to give the FDA jurisdiction over tobacco, end quote. Now, think about this. We know tobacco causes cancer, okay? You could argue that tobacco is more insidious and more dangerous than cocaine. And when you smoke cigarettes, when you smoke tobacco, you're not just hurting yourself. We know based on scientific studies that are secondhand smoke that you are slowly poisoning other people, period. (coughs) But the lower court decided no, the FDA could not regulate tobacco. So the court expanded. Okay, so this is this is part of the um, the major questions doctrine. Okay, that Kavanaugh just loves. So, given that history, the court lower court also determined quote that the federal law permitting the FDA to regulate drugs should not be read so broadly as to allow it to target nicotine. So Brown and Williamson placed a lot of emphasis on the fact that Congress rejected earlier efforts to allow the FDA to regulate tobacco. Now, the court expanded the major questions doctrine in a case called Utility Air Regulatory Group versus EPA in 2014. Now, in the Utility Air, the EPA case, um, it was said that, quote, any significant regulation pushed out by an agency is potentially suspect, regardless of whether Congress had given some outward sign that it disapproved of that regulation. Okay, Scalia wrote for the court in Utility Air, quote, we expect Congress to speak clearly if it wishes to assign to an agency decisions of vast economic and political significance. Okay, so that's setting it up, not just a major questions doctrine, but it's also setting the stage for the non-delegation doctrine because they're playing semantic word games. There's no argument that nicotine should be regulated. It is a dangerous substance, period. Again, they're using technical language to wiggle out from under. Keep in mind, Scalia wrote the utility air decision. And keep in mind, the late Antonin Scalia is also the the, the justice who wrote the decision in Citizens United, which claimed that money was speech and corporations were people. Okay? So in my opinion, Scalia has no no legitimacy whatsoever. So, but in utility air, the court did impose pretty much a new restriction on Congress. You know, and through Scalia's words, yes, the court basically, the court said that, yes, broad powers, Congress can delegate broad powers to agencies, but that any governing statute had to be written with this vague, unspecified level of precision. And that the courts could invalidate those regulations if, again, using the same vague term of, of amount of precision, they, they could, they could, the courts could basically invalidate any regulations that they say um, was insufficiently precise. 
the vagueness of that is just a, a license. It's a blank check for courts to do whatever they damn well please. Now, the major questions doctrine is a bit weaker than the non-delegation doctrine. And one, because the major questions doctrine doesn't claim to be a constitutional doctrine. Okay? Non-delegation is different. To quote this, quote, because non-delegation claims that there are constitutional limits on Congress's ability to delegate power, it is likely that justices loyal to this doctrine would declare some delegations invalid no matter how carefully Congress drafted a law. Whereas the major questions doctrine, quote, by contrast, theoretically can be overcome by precise draftsmanship. Okay? So this is what we're dealing with here. And the fact is, doctrines like major questions, and especially non-delegation, really threaten to retroactively undo decades of legislation. So there was another case really quickly here. This was after Brown and Williamson. Congress passed the Family Smoking Prevention and Tobacco Control Act of 2009. Now, this act explicitly gave the power that the court denied it in 2000. All right? You know, it basically said, yes, we can regulate tobacco. All right? But here's what happened. The major questions doctrine, well, here, let me move down here. I'm sorry, folks, I lost my place here. Um, I'm sorry, people. Ah. So, basically, you could... Uh, we're going to go into this a little deeper, okay? It's, bottom line is this. This is a very dangerous time, okay? The West Virginia v. EPA case is very treacherous, and yet it's been given practically no coverage in the mainstream corporate media, okay? And they basically dummy it down. There's been not enough coverage of individual justices. Just hasn't been. You know, they they have become the supreme priests of the holy words instead of being actual judges that are sent there to interpret the law. There's more here, but we're not going to go into all of that. Not today anyway. We I guarantee you we will be talking about this more in the future. But now I believe in giving credit where credit's due. So I want to give credit to the GOP Attorney General for West Virginia who brought this case to the Supreme Court, Attorney General Patrick Morrissey. This is the person you need to blame. All right. Um, You know, he's, this is what this is about. All right. Um, And as for so-called more moderate Republican garbage. Don't believe that nonsense. Um, This was an article that was done by the Parkersburg News and Sentinel. Okay? Said Morrissey preps clean power plan arguments for U.S. Supreme Court sites. Okay? 
And Morrissey held a briefing with reporters in early November as he brought this. Uh, the Supreme Court announced that they would hear this challenge. Uh, Morrissey said that this is, quote, the biggest case before the U.S. Supreme Court now in 2022 is going to be West Virginia versus EPA. I agree with them, it is. Um, it goes on to explain how the states are challenging a ruling by the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia that blocked the Affordable Clean Energy Rule, in other words, the Trump era rule, that was supposed to replace the clean power plant. And that's because, again, the ACE rule gives coal plants a blank check. It just does. It's a gar it, it, it's, it protects no one except the coal plants. Morrissey was quoted as saying, quote, the D.C. Circuit's decision is both legally wrong, but it's also dangerous, which is why we are so grateful the Supreme Court has agreed to take up the case. We are now beginning our work in earnest. Okay? So it goes on and goes on and goes on. U.S. Senator Shelley Moore Capito, who's also from West Virginia, praised the Supreme Court. She is the ranking Republican member of the Senate Environment and Public Works Committee, okay, and she said that EPA Administrator Michael Regan, who was confirmed, um, she said she said this quote, quote, Regan told the press that he intended to push the envelope of his agency's statutory authority when it comes to issuing regulations that destroy West Virginia jobs and raise energy prices. That is why it's so important that courts apply our laws fairly and prevent agencies from exceeding the power given to them by Congress. This is an important case to demonstrate that elected representatives, not administrative agencies, are responsible for making our nation's laws, end quote. Again, more crap. Let's go into the conclusion. And, and the, one of the real problems with this case is that there's another interpretation that we didn't get into today, which is that there is uh, a provision a detail where the Supreme Court might signal that the non-delegation doctrine wouldn't just apply to laws from this point on, but it also could nullify all regulations retroactive. In other words, all these older regulations, too, that existed long before these people were on the court. And if that's the instance, then we have a real problem. Think about that. So I threw a lot of guys at you guys today. It is complex. We will be discussing it more. In conclusion, I don't just place this lane for this only on the Supreme Court. I think it is really clear now the legal profession needs to be reformed and that the legal profession has done very little to not only hold their own members accountable, but they've done little to protect any semblance of democratic rule. Instead, they prefer to drag out an illegal proceeding on the altar of, quote, billable hours. These cases shouldn't be a full corporate attorney's employment bill. They should be dealing with real issues of law, not technical ruminations that are meant to manipulate and, and defy the spirit of the law. There aren't any heroes in this story. Okay, there's art. The GOP of Trump has proven its historic hostility and contempt for democratic rule, while at the same time, the cowardly democratic centrist 
do nothing. The mainstream, in other words, corporate-owned media would have us believe that there's nothing we can do to save democracy. They're wrong. We must resist, and resistance begins with a national strike, not just one national strike, entire wave of uh, repetitive national strikes. That's the only weapon we have left. The rule of law has been corrupted beyond belief. The police work for the rich. They can't be trusted. And that's all we have left is to say we're not going to work. We're not going to cooperate. Everything's going to come to a grinding halt over and over and over again, except for emergency services, until we get some honest governance. That's going to take some guts. Excuse me. Corporate attorneys and corporate law firms lose power when the corporations they represent represent, fire them. These same corporate law firms must also face professional accountability, and that means allowing lay people on professional licensure boards for attorneys. Corporate attorneys can continue to practice if they no longer hold a license to practice law. This reflects on the rule of law itself. See, for too long, our nation's law schools have wrongfully taught that attorneys are the nation's lawgivers. They're not. The people are supposed to be the nation's lawgivers. The rule of law has become, though, an amalgam of double talk, vague language, and professional jargon whose true meaning even evades the top legal experts. Remember when Senator Elizabeth Warren was asked about a the average credit card um, contract or the average contract for a car, for a car sale. And she was she just looked and she says, I can't figure out what this junk is. She goes, and I'm the top legal expert at Harvard Law School. Folks, wake up. What does that tell you? You're being scammed. The only reason for such surface level complexity, so much jargon, which lack, lacking any meaningful substance, is to obfuscate confound, confuse, and hide injustice behind a wall of jargon more similar to what was admitted at the biblical power of Babel than legitimate rhetoric. The law and rule of law in this country has become unreachable for most. Only the 1% can afford most legal representation outside of a class action suit. Furthermore, when the law only furthers the demands of corporate oligarchs, It has become a mockery and a fraud. Now, this show focuses on environmental justice. But we, again, like I said at the beginning of the show, we have to remember there can be no environmental justice when there is no justice at all. Reform has to happen. The law must be written in plain terms, which the average person can understand. There's no legitimate need for jargon outside of its use as professional shorthand for practitioners. And any time jargon is used, the attorneys and the judges must be forced to explain it in plain terms. Now, law and order types, they used to love to pontificate and exclaim that ignorance of the law is no excuse. Yeah, I would argue that it is absolutely unreasonable to demand compliance with laws written in language so incomprehensible filled with jargon and vague criterion that you can't even know what the damn law says. Time to put the legal profession, lawyers and judges, on notice. 
time that they actually obey the law. Okay, so that's our first story. Now our newest feature, <coughs> let me grab a drink of water here, folks, is <coughs> this is a fun feature. It's called the, normally it was called the jackass of the week. I, I've amended it, you know, because, gosh, that really wasn't correct. It is now the GOP jackass of the week. And the award goes to a January 6th insurrectionist, blonde woman, she was a real estate agent from Texas, who once claimed she would never wind up in prison, courtesy of her white skin and blonde hair. Again, she made it to the insurrection in a private jet. Her name is Jenna Ryan. And now she's telling her brain-dead Trumper followers that prison might not be so bad. She'll do a lot of yoga and lose 30 pounds. This is an article, and I'm going to give the accent that I think she deserves, okay? So Jenna Ryan was sentenced to 60 days in prison, and that's after she bragged on Twitter that, quote, her white skin meant she wouldn't serve any time for her role in storming the Capitol during the January 6th insurrection. But now she's saying she has some big plans for for jail time. Uh, the only thing that I can see about that's good about having to go to prison is that I'm going to be able to work out a lot and do a lot of yoga and detox. Also, I can't eat because the food is, like, awful and there's just no food. So hopefully they'll have some, like, protein shakes and some protein bars, I think, because you don't want to, like, eat green bologna. That's what they have to eat. Yes, Valley Girl Talk, because she's that effing stupid and that effing entitled. She goes on to say, oh, you know, like, if I do that, it would be worth, like, going to prison for 60 days. If I like to lose 30 pounds, it would be so worth it. You have to look at the bright side of everything you do, and that's what I'm trying to do. So wish me luck. Okay. So, and again, this past March, she issued this Twitter, this tweet response, about how she wasn't going to go to jail for her role in the insurrection, saying that, quote, she's like blonde hair, white skin, a great job, a great future. So sorry to ran your hate, Peter Parade. I did nothing wrong. Yeah, right. So uh, she goes on to say she did apologize for her conduct. She said, I apologize to the court, to America, the Capitol Police, and Congress. This was in a letter that she sent to U.S. District Judge Christopher Cooper um, ahead of her sentencing. Please, like, see my deep remorse, regret, and willingness to accept full responsibility for my actions. And then she goes on to say, quote, while I feel badly about unlawfully entering into the Capitol on January 6th, not everything I did that day was bad. Some actions I took that day were good. I came to D.C. to, like, protest the election results. I wanted my voice to be heard. My only weapon was like my voice and my cell phone. So, and she goes on and on and on. And then she tweeted Monday, he's like a headshot to the media to use. Okay, you can clearly see why I'm calling her the GOP. In fact, I, I really knew amend this title more. She is the GOP Trumper jackass of the week. Okay. What she has to say speaks for itself. It just does. And 
you know, I hope like uh just to use the way she's the way she talks, I hope like uh, you know, she has a roommate like a big female bubba type that, you know, teaches her how to kind of, you know, how to behave in prison. Actually I don't wish any harm on her, but um again, she is so clueless it is beyond belief. And she's clueless because she truly believes her white skin and blonde hair grants her a get-out-of-jail-free card. That's it. That's what all of this is about. So anyway, that's our show for today. I hope you learned something. We will be talking about the non-delegation doctrine again in the future, I'm sure. Um, And as for callers that would demand to monopolize the time that I and my colleagues pay for, never going to happen. They can just sit and spin because I'm not going to be bullied by Trump conservatives. No way, no how. Not this little Jew girl. Anyway, with that I say, good night and oh Lord, God bless us.